using things like pray for parking spaces. Uh, when I uh, was counseling in the early days, Bill Gothard taught me to be a counselor many, many, many years ago. And I would counsel in Seattle Arena, and there was only three places that you could park anywhere near the arena that were free. And uh, we just did not have the money to pay for parking. And we just were thankful to have gas to get there, and we'd always pray that one of those three slots, I mean, you can imagine, there's 32,000 people there, that God would hold one of those three places open for us because we just couldn't afford to park every night and pay for it, and it was always open. And I would just park your car and say, God, you know, is it your car or God's car? And if you've given things to the Lord, you say, Lord, this is your car, and we're asking you to protect it. And I, uh, um, and, you know, he can he really, really can. I, I want you, we, we want to talk about the worst sin a Christian can commit. And this is the, um, the sin of all sins. And I'd like you to go to Ezekiel. In our counseling, this is what turns the whole tide. The whole issue of the week switches on this day when we deal with this. Um, as we begin to walk through this in a Christian's life, all of a sudden warfare makes sense for the real first time. And we want to start with Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28, the, um, for the first time, or I think the first time that I know, this scripture is coming under attack, that this is not Satan. And Isaiah 14 is coming under attack, this is not Satan. It's amazing. I mean, for, for you read all of the old commentaries, it was... It was Satan, you know, there was no doubt. But let me um, give you the, my reason for saying this is Satan. He's not talking about a person. He's talking about a judgment God is bringing upon a place called Tyre. Tyre was a real place with a real king. And it said in verse 7, uh, verse 2 of 28, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre. Then you get to verse 12. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre. And what we see here is something that's not done in Hebrew, and that is changing titles for the same person. And so what he's doing is he's switching. He's talking about a man in verse 2 that's a literal prince of Tyre, a physical man that was the prince there. Now he's talking about the king of Tyre, which was the, a force you couldn't see behind him. He also said here that this, this king had been in the Garden of Eden. How many people does the Bible indicate was in the Garden of Eden? Adam. I don't think he's talking about Adam on the throne. Eve, if it sounds like a man, I don't think it was Eve. And the other person was what? Satan. No one else was in the Garden. And it said this man had been in the Garden of Eden walking up and down. The other thing it said, he was a cherub, an angel over the throne of God. And I don't think an angel over the throne of God was a physical king. And what I think he's talking about is a demonic force behind the ruler you see. And he said, as I judge this demonic king, I will judge this earthly king, because he's doing the very same thing. And so let's look at this in uh, Ezekiel 28. He says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation to the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Um, talking about the, the, the brilliancy of this person and his looks. When Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan, I mean, garden, in the Garden of Eden, I'm trying to go faster. It doesn't work. My mind goes faster than my tongue. Um, and that is that 
it wasn't like a creature out of the swamp. I mean, after all, she was a typical woman, uh, no different than any lady here, and if something walked up to you that looked like something out of a Hollywood horror movie, there was no way that you would, would receive it. I mean, you would be horrified. She was not horrified. It was very attractive. He said every precious stone was his covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sat, uh, sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. I believe his, his robe was woven gold with these stones in it. And Satan was an angel of light. The stones have every color, red, greens, blues, whites, and so on. And as the light flowed from him through, these, through these, this woven robe of gold, it was very beautiful as all these colors came from him. It's just like the New Jerusalem. And I remember talks about the stones and different colors. And the Lord will be there and he'll be the light because there needs to be no sun. And the light comes through all those stones. It's all the rainbow colors. It'd be something that'd be very beautiful. And so here was these lights flowing out from him. And the King James is the only one that's kept this translation. All the rest of the translations of the Bible have changed it. It says, The workmanship of thy tablets and pipes was prepared in thee the day that thou was created. You check any commentary on this verse up until just recently, tablets and pipes were never called into question. But now they will give you an alternate translation and say it's settings and sockets, and then some of your Bibles will have a footnote saying the exact meaning of this is not true, which is not true. Or there is an alternate rendering of this, and they give you the English words, flutes and tambourines. If you're translating this passage and you don't believe in the enemy, it's pretty hard to believe that here is a, someone that has flutes and tambourines inside of them. When you go to a doctor and ask them to remove your flutes. <laughs> He says, yes, we got a place uh, over here It's called Happy, Happy Land. <laughs> they do that over there. <laughs> We'd be glad to make arrangements for you. <laughs> we don't have flutes and tambourines. What were those? Those are, in, in the Hebrew, look up the words. They're words for musical instruments. And here we see, back in Satan in his pre-thrown-out-of-heaven days, was involved with music, and I don't think he's ever let go of it. And you, uh, if you study music and listen to what they're saying, you'll find that the Christian community struggles more with music. And they say it's amoral. The non-Christian community will just laugh at them and say, music is not amoral. Music does. I mean, there's mood music. Why do you have mood music if it doesn't affect you? Right? It just has no effect on me. Wait, that is not true. Then why do we have worship music? Right? I mean, it doesn't, why bother to have worship music? It doesn't produce something within me to want to worship it. There's, it music is not immoral. I mean, you have to realize that music does have a real effect on you. I remember listening to a secular NPR station, and they were saying, and I wish I couldn't write it down, I was driving somewhere on the freeway or something, and they were talking about if you can control the music of a nation, you can control the nation. And they had a, a session on music and its effect on people. And the enemy knows that. Um, you know, fellows uh, will sit in my office and kids will say, well, they're, 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 there's no such thing as, um, you know, as music affecting you. It doesn't have any effect on you. I listen to any kind of music I want to and all that. And I said, listen, you go down here to one of these joints, these topless bars, and these girls are not dancing to just as I am. You know, the, what the evil they're doing is music that fits their evil. And we, we've got to see that there's music that is not conducive for the Spirit of God to operate. And there's music that's not conducive for enemy spirits to operate. 
And we see that when Saul was overcome with wicked spirits, David came and he played and the spirits left him. And, and I don't think he was playing rock. And he played music and that music was such that it caused the, 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 the evil presence to leave him and, and to go. There is music that involves invite spirits. As I travel all over and talk to animistic groups from countries all over the world, I said, would you use music that calls spirits to put Christian words to to teach your kids in Sunday school? And they're horrified, absolutely horrified. They know the music that people use to call spirits. So just ask any animistic group, do your people use music to call spirits? Oh, yes. Whether it's chanting or regular other things, yeah, we use music to call spirits. And I'm really concerned that we see the church moving in that arena. And I think that's why we're not seeing a revival. As part of it is that, that we're not careful about what we're using in our services. And you can disagree with me, and that's, that's fine. But I'm just saying that's from my, my, my impression. I'm really concerned of how we seem to be going into the wrong area and drifting. And, and we're not seeing... Um, a turning in America. We're not seeing a revival. Remember in the old, if you read all, anything about the old revivals, when non-Christian people would come into a town where Finney or these men were, they couldn't handle it. Uh, we had a girl here last night, and she's not here now. I don't, I'm pretty sure she's not here. That could not handle being in this room. She had to be out there. Well, if you saw her and looked at her, you knew what was the problem. She's just being eclipsed by the forces of darkness. She could not handle being in here. Why? Because the word of God was being shared and so many Christians here are committed to Christ. And she sensed the presence of God. And when these people would come into where these revivals were, they couldn't handle it. You read the, read the revivals. They would fall down. They'd cry, someone help me. Someone help me. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I'm unclean. And ungodly people can go to a local church today and walk out with no feelings at all. And there should be a sense of God's presence there. And we're just not getting it. And we just need to pray. And I don't know what all the answers are, but we need to pray, God, there's something missing. There's something the church had that doesn't have anymore. And we know that you're still here. There's something not quite right. And I know uh, one of the amazing things, when you get committed people together, that at the University of Tennessee, I look forward to that meeting every year. Because when I walk into the arena, and there's 17,000 people in that arena or more, some of them are messed up, but some of them are not. Let's say 7,000 of them are messed up. There's 10,000 Christians that are committed to Christ. When you walk into that arena, you can hack, you can really hack the Spirit of God. You know what I'm saying? It, it's just over that place. You know what they say at that university? When these families come there, there's something different that happens to this whole university. The dorms change. Everything changes when, this, when these people are here. Why? Because the Spirit of God is flowing from their life and you get all these Christians together and what do you sense? You sense the Spirit of God in this place and all the secular people on that campus sense it. They know and they keep saying that year after year we don't want you not to come back here. Somehow when you guys come on campus when you have this meeting something is totally, totally different here. And that should be the same thing when, when they come to a church. That same feeling. I don't feel comfortable. There's something here that I want to get. And we can't create it through atmosphere. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're building a brand new church. Well, now I'm at our church where my son's a youth pastor. We're building a brand new church, spending millions on it. You can spend all the millions you want to. You, I'm not talking about atmosphere. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about you can be an old storefront, and everybody's right with God, and there'll be really a sense of God's presence. And we need to see that again. And music is a real part of that. 
and Satan's been involved with music. In fact, Dr. McGee was my pastor. He was preaching on this, and he said this. When Satan fell out of heaven, he fell in the choir loft. Now, I don't know what we're having trouble in our church with the choir, but, <laughs> you know, and that was a long time ago. That was in the 60s when McGee was my pastor. But <clears throat> so, you know, he said, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast on the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in the ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. And what was the iniquity? He said, By the merchandise, by, by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled thy midst of thee with violence. Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mount of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Here it comes. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by the reason of thy brightness, and I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Now, what was Satan's problem? What was the thing that caused him to be thrown out of heaven? Very, very simple. It's pride. P-R-I-D-E. Pride is revolving life around myself. It's making I the center of my life. That's the whole center of the New Age philosophy. That's what it's all about. Isn't it? You, study, you know anything about New Age? You know, if one of us has to be unhappy, I choose you. You know, what I do is my business, what you do is your business, and I'm sorry if you struggle with me, and I feel I need a divorce. After all, I need to be happy. I know the kids will be devastated, and you'll be hurt, but I need to be happy. Now, really, that's the bottom line. It's all me, 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 the meism thing. And I want you to look at Isaiah 14. I think Isaiah 14 gives us a great clue of what pride is really all about, and that's another description of um, Satan been thrown out of heaven. Isaiah 14 says, How art thou fallen, verse 12, 13, and 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How is it thou art cut down to the ground which had weakened the nation? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I think the most, one of the most significant things here, I ask my counselees, and they do the reading. I don't read scriptures. Now, sometimes the counselees are under so much attack, they can't read scripture. I mean, they can't function. Their, their mind doesn't track that much. But usually I have them read the scripture. And then I say, what is it saying? And I said, who does Satan say this to? And they always say, God. I said, no, read it again. He said it to himself. The most important conversations you have, you have with yourself. Until you change what you say to yourself, you'll never really change. See, if you don't change what a belief system of a person, they don't change. Now, you can put on the outward thing, and you can, you know, wear a white suit and, and you know, white shirt and white suit, blue suit, white shirt, white tie, and carry a Bible right and all of that. That doesn't mean there's a real change. So a real change is when the self-talk changes, because Jesus says, "As man speaketh in his heart, what? So is he." And so until he changes what he says to himself, he doesn't change. I know if we had a chair here with a machine that we could put your thoughts up on the wall and we want someone to volunteer so we could see what you thought about for a week because then we'd really know you. I don't think anybody would want to sit in a chair. Because we need to get in touch with what's going on in my mind. Because remember we said that was a battle when we first started? The battle is what? For my mind? The thoughts the enemy puts in my mind? The enemy puts thoughts there? And these intruding thoughts in my mind? And if I dwell on those thoughts and so on, eventually I'm going to do them. As far as we know, Satan never said this out loud. 
And one thing that we started doing as a family in the lives of our children, and that was to discipline them for bad attitudes rather than wrong actions. It was like nipping it in the bud. You see the rolling of the eyes? You ever see teenagers do that? They know how to roll eyes really good. What are they saying when you say do something they go? You know what they're telling you. Is that good? Not good. You know, so we want them to roll their eyes back the other way. <laughs> and so we, we, we worked on that. We've asked our kids. We we're very squeaky, uh, conservative. There's so much that we didn't do that other kids could do and so on. But our kids internalized most of the truths that we shared. And we asked them what they thought we were too conservative. And our kids have said this. And all of them, I told you, are, are saved. And three of them are in full-time Christian ministry. And all of our grandchildren are saved. And are looking to go into ministry, some of them full-time. And then they're open to be missionaries and so on. And so somehow our conservativeness did not turn our kids on. And I said, how come? We were so squeaky. And here we were pastoring churches. You couldn't even go to some of the activities that the youth were doing. I mean, the kids wouldn't go because they didn't feel it was right to do that. So they stood alone in our, our pastor. Isn't that interesting? Your kids stand alone in the church you're pastoring. But anyway, I'm glad they did. You know, they just said, we just can't do that. I just don't feel comfortable in being involved in this activity. And um, they said, you know, we didn't always agree with you. But the one thing we know is that you and Mom loved us. Isn't that neat? You know, we didn't always agree, but you knew you loved us. And we knew you wanted us to turn out right. And um, so it's just been interesting to watch them now with their kids and what they do and don't do and what they allow and don't allow. And as parent, grandparents, sometimes you want to say things, but you learn to zip the lip. You know, because times are changing and, and there are things that are, are far more battles that our grandkids are having that, that our kids never had because things are getting worse in America and the battle for young people is getting worse and worse and worse so the battles kind of change and they, they need to stand alone and I just trust that my grandchildren will learn to stand alone to be able to identify with something positive we want to look at the last I will here because this is the significant one the really significant I will is I will be like the most high and uh, the last I will here is, is El Elyon Satan could have taken any name for God he wanted to, but he took this one. And when he took this name for God, he's telling us something significant. He's saying, it's this aspect of God's character I want to be like. And so what was he saying when he said El Elyon? He didn't say I want to be like Jehovah Jireh that would provide a sacrifice, or Jehovah Rapha, the healer. That's not what he wanted to be. Or Jehovah Tiskanu, that's the comforter. That's not what Satan wanted to be. He wanted to be like El Elyon. El Elyon has many names if you look it up. The names for God, just look in any theological book or whatever, you'll see the names for God or Hebrew. But I think if you boil it down, that what I'm going to tell you is, 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 is right on, and that is literally the sovereign one that reigns. It's talking about the sovereign one, the one who rules heaven and earth. That's who El Elyon is. And what was saying, Satan saying? He didn't say, I don't want El Elyon in my life. That's rebellion. Or El Elyon has no right to rule the universe. That's not what he said. He said, I want to be what? Like him. What was he saying? In essence, he was saying, God, you run heaven and I'll run me. That's pride. Setting myself as the final authority in my life. Yes, that's fine, God. You do your thing and I'll do mine. And that's pride. We want to look at the devastation that pride will bring into a person's life. And, um, and all of a sudden, 
I know that if, you, if warfare hasn't made sense, it will click in right now as we go through this study. We're going to run through Proverbs and look at every verse on pride. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. And the first thing on God's hate list is the proud look. Pride in the countenance. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And then he lists the first two evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way do I hate. And the forward mouth. And what he's saying there, he said, I hate pride and arrogancy as much as an evil lifestyle. It's interesting. He doesn't say why. He just said pride and arrogancy as much as this. And people say, well, a little bit of pride never hurt anybody. Well, what they may be talking about self-respect. We're not, ta we're not talking about self-respect. We're talking about something much deeper here. We're talking about what? Not whether you comb your hair or don't comb your hair. We talk about what? Revolving life around me. But there is the obvious pride. We've had weightlifters. I mean real weightlifters. I mean guys whose muscles had muscles. We had one fellow who was being geared to be the Mr. America. And when he stopped taking steroids, he lost 40 pounds of muscle. And I was saying, where'd you lose it? Where'd you lose it? <laughs> I could use some of it. Uh, I'll go find it. But this guy, he was just a, a, a rather a short fellow, very good looking, super personality. He came to, when he came to the door, he put one shoulder in and then the other one. I mean, this guy was unbelievably big. In order to get jeans to, to, that would fit around his waist, he couldn't get them over his legs. And this is after he stopped going to the gyms. He stopped all this stuff because he was building life around his looks. And then he got involved in ministry and started taking kids back to gyms, but he couldn't do it. You know why? You know what's in... What, you ever been to a, a workout center? What have they got more than weights in there? Mirrors. Mirrors. <laughs> Almost it's on video. <laughs> Don't let Bill Gothard watch this one. <laughs> Oh my. I'm not proud. <laughs> oh, terrible. <clears throat> but it's awful. And then you're comparing with someone else. You know, my arm's bigger than his and all this stuff. It's just terrible. And we get a lot of guys in that, and they have to give it up. You know, guys that are into weightlifting just for their health and physical and keeping it normal, as long as it's normal, anything. You know, normal is normal. Although, I don't know, do, do, do Christians really golf? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you can build your life around, right? All of a sudden, golf becomes what it shouldn't be. I mean, I've never done that, but I mean, if you want to chase a ball all those miles, that's fine. Uh, it's just something that never appealed to me. But, you know, it's just, we've got to be careful. There's nothing wrong with exercise. There's nothing wrong with, with trying to keep my body fit. There's nothing wrong with combing my hair right. But all of a sudden, it can switch to become something it ought not be. And if the switch can be dangerous, and all of a sudden you see it, you're building your life around this thing, and all of a sudden, it's it's the important thing in your life. But pride is is goes into many more areas than just the outward. Uh, look at Proverbs 11:2. <clears throat> pride cometh. When pride cometh, then come a shame. God does not tell us, but we've seen some top ministers come to shame in their ministries. What was their problem? Immorality? Is that their problem? That's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says was their problem? 
pride. Pride brought them to shame. There was something that shamed them, but the underlying cause was pride. I want to make this statement, and it's so true. Success has destroyed more people than failure. Often when a man fails, he gets up and goes on again. But let me tell you, you get successful, and pretty soon you can say, look what I have what? Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And that's why I'm so thankful at times we're in situations I don't know what to do. Because it keeps me what? Praying and realizing I'm not the deliverer. And I tell people, if you come here for me to deliver you, I'm sorry I can't do it. I said, you mean I flew all the way here from a foreign country, all the way here from New York City or whatever, and you can't deliver me? I said, absolutely, I'm not the deliverer. Jesus is. I'm just here to help you. I'm just here to expose you to the truth of Scripture and to encourage you to get line your life up. But the only one that will ever be able to set you free is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that does it, not me. We'll sit in a, in a room, and I just said yesterday, or the day before, with his family, who has the most power of anybody in this room? And the wife says, well, you do. I said, no. In fact, in your life, the one who has most power is your husband. Because God put him in to protect your home. He has more power over you and your situation than I do. Spiritual power. But all of us are equal. Every one of us in here are equal. The only thing I bring to a counseling session is experience. I don't bring more power. Right? We all have the Spirit in us. Same, the same source of power. Proverbs 13.10 Only by pride comes contention. Did you guys have a, a fight? Do you know when most Christians fight? On the way to church. The kids go, oh, this is really fun. Right? And we get out of the car and we're smiling. <laughs> My kids are going, oh, yuck. <clears throat> now, I used to say, this is the way I used to do devotions. All right, you kids, shut up. We're having devotions. <laughs> yes, Dad. Oh, we can hardly wait. <laughs> this is neat. We're Christians. <laughs> Great. <clears throat> it's amazing, you know. And, and, and I find that every time I start getting in contention with my wife, guess what I see rising up in me? Ugly pride. Ugly pride. And i got to deal with it. You know, it would be so much easier for, if our partners would change. <laughs> you know, when I'm, my son just got married, he waited 27 years in praying to God. And one of the things I was so thankful, he made a commitment to be pure. And that he would go into marriage as a pure young man, and he prayed that God would bring a pure girl in his life. But if he waited, that God would bring the right girl in his life. And God brought the loveliest girl. I mean, you just can't imagine designing a nicer girl than he got. They've had a year of marriage, and the in-laws said, what was the hardest thing for you guys to struggle with your first year of marriage? And Richard said, you know, we're so different, but nothing. There was no, we've had no major struggles our first year of marriage. Not because they're denying and putting it away that they just waited for God's best in, in, their, in their life. And he um, is so thankful that he waited. But what was I going to tell you about him? I was going to tell you something. Oh, yeah, the wedding. When a girl goes to get married, there's a lot of things that she has to think about, you know. And, and one is, where are the aisles? You know, you're going to go up that aisle and go out this one, or has it got a central aisle and all that kind of stuff and all of that. And then what are you going to do with the altar? 
you know, you put the altar over here, or you know, in the churches they have in the middle, you can put the stairways up, you have to go to the side stairs, how are we going to do all of that part of it? And what kind of music, are, you know, what kind of hymns are you going to play? These are very, very important. When a woman gets married, and you put it together, and what's her problem? I'll alter him. <laughs> saying before you get married you've seen the best that you're going to see <laughs> girls need to be hard to get they need to challenge guys to godliness and challenge guys a guy will only give what a gal challenged him to give it's really vital we taught our kids spiritual dating and our first son along uh, wrote us letters back and forth and so on and, and uh, our daughter after she went out two times in Bible school with him she said uh, uh, the first time she didn't need permission the second time if a guy asked we said she needed, he needed permission from us and she had committed to that and, and she said you know I will not date you because you're not a spiritual leader all you're doing is praying before a date and praying after a date and we have some devotions but that's not enough and I can't go with you it's the only fellow she ever liked she ended up marrying him but I mean, this is the only guy she ever ever knew she just felt was the right person but she just couldn't go out with him that was not enough spiritually so he wrote me a letter and he said Mr. Logan I really love your daughter could you help me design spiritual dates and so that summer we designed spiritual dates and how he could date on a spiritual level so that she could admire him as a Christian and then all through their college days, I would get back from him his goals and projects to okay for that semester of spiritual dating. This is all right. What do you think about me building this in your daughter, and how do you feel? So we were able to work together for their, their dating relationship, and uh, I'm really proud to have him for my son-in-law. I mean, just to, to watch him just become a spiritual leader, going from, you know, whatever. And what motivated him was my daughter, she challenged him to be godly and he took the challenge and she's very very glad that he did you know <clears throat> um i still have a daughter that's 37 that's on hold and waiting <laughs> for prince charming she said i will not change singleness and the ability to serve god for the most miserable christian wedding marriages that i've seen i will refuse i will stay single and serve the lord with all my heart than to end up in something like that. You know, and whatever I get married, the guy has got to be on the ball. And Dad, I just don't see any on the ball here at all. So fine, you know. Um, maybe God has called her to be single. At least she's single now. That's her calling now, isn't it, right? She's 37 to be single, and she's, she's not sitting around bemoaning her virginity. You know what I mean? We see people like that. Ugh, I'm not married. I'm not married. And they're getting married. Something's gonna, they're going to become a whole person. One of the people are married saying, oh, if I was only single, if I was only single. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 25, Proverbs 15:25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he'll establish the border of the widow. See, if pride is not dealt with, God is going to destroy the house. That's not termites and earthquakes. It's, it's going to be great dis destruction. And I really encourage men to check this. Boy, if you're building life around yourself, let me tell you, you may see your house crumbling all around you. Proverbs 16.5, and this is the strongest one. Everyone, we don't like those everyone's. It should be just sometimes or few or something. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to God. 
And he said, you can be sure of this, because their hand joined in hand. In a modern translation, says, you can be sure of this, he will not go unpunished. That's strong, isn't it? If I let pride in my life, it become an abomination to God, and God said, you can count on this, you'll not get away with it. And then Proverbs 8, uh, 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's one we know. I mean, everybody quotes that one. Even brand new Christians seem to know that one. And then the, uh, the next one is Proverbs 28, I think it's 28, 13. It's not 28, 13. It's 28, 25. He that is a proud heart stirs up strife. Now, if you have other translations, it will say greedy. Uh, some will say arrogant. But uh, so you can, if you're in a church where they don't use the King James and just cross that verse out, come say, but I didn't say it might. Say, well, what's the difference between strife and contention? And in the beginning, all of them say pride causes contention. And then the last one is Proverbs uh, 29:23. A man's pride shall bring him low. The interesting thing is, Scripture does not indicate how it happens. It just says it will happen. Pride not dealt with in a person's life is going to bring great destruction to that person and to the home. And James, chapter 4, puts it together. He tells us the dynamics of why pride goes before a fall, why destruction will come in anyone's life that refuses to deal with this issue of pride. James 4, 6. I have them read this, but he giveth more grace, wherefore it said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I asked my counselees, what does God give? And they always say, grace. I said, wrong. They said, well, it says, God gives grace to the humble. I said, yeah, you're sort of right. But what does he give? And they, they look. Sometimes they don't get it. I said, well, let's say that you have financial troubles. And this hand, I have money. And this hand, I have more money. Which hand do you take? Well, guess what they all want? What? More money. And so he says that God has what? More grace. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, he which hath begun a good work, what? In you, will perform it unto the day of Christ. Then you go to chapter 2 and he expands that, that thought. And this is where I think you get a working definition of grace. Philippians 2.13. It is God that works in you. He already said that in Philippians 1.6. It is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is he saying there? He's saying that God is working in you and I and he's giving us a desire and the empowering to live in a way that will please him. That's what grace is. God gives me the desire and the power. It's of God. There was a time in my life that God gave me the desire and the ability to receive his son as Savior. All of a sudden, I had a desire to become a believer. The first time I was witnessed to, I met my first Christian at 18 and a half years of age, and I was not interested. I met the same Christian a year later, and something different happened inside of me. I wanted that. I knew I needed that desperately, that my life was going to be ruined if I did not receive this person called the Lord Jesus Christ and have him take care of the sin question in my life. And something happened with me, and I wanted the desire, and God gave me the power to do it. That's why he said we're saved by what? For by grace are you saved through faith. Okay, so 
God is going to give me greater power and a greater desire than anything that I can face. If that is true, then why are there so many losers on the winning team? Right? There's a verse in Romans 8, wonderful verse, that says, If God be for us, what? Who can be against us? But let me ask you this question. If God is resisting you, does it make any differences for you? And when would God ever resist a believer? When pride comes in his life. And God withholds from that believer what? Spiritual power. And what does Satan come with? Temptation. And that's why pride comes before what? A fall. Because the person themselves cannot deal with this issue. It is much greater and much bigger than themselves. And they'll just fall. And you can never help anybody come to freedom until they're willing to deal with what? Pride. They've got to deal with pride. It's the bottom line of anything that's going on in their life. Remember I said, it's not what's happening in someone's life because we get all kinds of weird, strange stuff. It's why. Isn't it? Isn't the question? Why? Let's take care of the why. You're, you're a doctor. Is what really important? Or is it why it's happening is really important? You can go to a doctor and say, well, this is what's going on. The reason you're this way is this and this and this and this. And I'm going, great. But I want you to take care of the why of it. Yes, and you're probably coughing blood. Yes, I'm coughing blood. Now, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, this is my symptoms, but why am I doing it? If you find out why, you can deal with it. If you don't get the why, but you can't deal with it. You just deal with all this wet surface stuff. But you've got to get down to the root, and this is one of the root things. So he tells us here that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And a prideful man is just one like, God, don't worry about me. You know, I can do it to more and more and more than that. But a humble man basically cries out to God and says, God, without your empowering on my life today, I'm not going to make it. You know, are there people that, that, that beat the drug, habit, the drug habit that aren't Christians? You better believe it. Are there people that are not alcoholics today because they beat it? Sure. Does AA work? Sure it does. You know, there are guys that have strong personalities and they, is that a sign in the empowering of God? No, just that they grip the bedpost and that's it. But let me tell you, as a Christian, there's areas that you just can't grip the bedpost on and you're going to lose. You're going to need to say, God, I need you. I just can't win this one. This is beyond me. This is more than me. This is what? Humbling yourself and really repentance comes when I come to realize, hey, I just can't do this. And if God, you don't do something, nothing is going to happen here. I'm just going to be a mess. And you've got to work in my life. Verse 7 says then, after you, you cried out to God in humility and asked God to empower your life for, for victory over this thing that's been empowering you. And yet God said he has more power than this, and yet I haven't experienced that. But I cry out for God's empowering in my life. Then he said, submit yourself therefore to God. And this becomes a homework assignment. I haven't given you the homework assignments we give people, but this is a homework assignment. If you are to submit your life to God, what are you submitting? What does it mean to submit your life? What are you talking about, your life? You know, there's areas of my life. Well, what are the areas of your life? Are you willing to submit your marriage? Are you willing to submit your friendship? Are you willing to submit your educational goals or your, your, your you know, uh, employment and where you work? And your, If a young person is in the area of dating and music, the last two things that a young person can surrender to God and they struggle with is dating and music. And I used to do uh, music seminars. I don't know if Dr. Price is here, if he's in the, the audience. I know he was going to try and come here, 
But I, he flew me down to Dallas years ago to teach spiritual dating to his youth group somewhere here in Dallas. And um, I was going all over teaching spiritual dating, but we taught our children and how to date on a level that would be a spiritual level rather than a physical level. Spiritual level produces good fruit. Physical level produces guilt. And where kids don't have to violate their conscience to have a relationship. So we were teaching that. And I was teaching it at a Christian high school, and one guy turned over to a girl and he said, Oh, brother, what does that old man know about teaching dating? She said, <clears throat> That old man's my father. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I see that kid in the hall. I said, I'm her old man. Oh, Mr. Logan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. <laughs> Oh, my. But, you know, we're submitting to God. What are we submitting? If somebody say, I surrender all. What are you talking about the all? What's, what's a part of the all? So what is all? What, what are we talking about? Well, your life is made up of parts. I mean, we are a whole person, but they're, you know, what do you call it? Just sections of my life. And I have them write those sections out as a homework assignment. Why don't you sit down and see what are the various aspects of your life? If you want to give this to God, what are you giving him? What are we talking about? Why don't you sit and, and identify those areas so that you can surrender those to the Lord. Just give those areas of your life to the Lord. All of them. But remember I said teenagers, the, the music and the dating issues, so hard for them. Because somehow they think God will mess them up you know, if, they, if they yield those areas to the Lord. And then he said, from the place of submission, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And there are so many Christians that are resisting God. What are they doing when they resist God? They begin to submit to who? The devil. And they say, warfare doesn't work. I said, listen, you're not working it. You're not submitted to the Lord. And where's be said? In the area of your life that you're not willing for God to control, Satan will. That's a pretty strong statement. So I want to withhold an area of my life from the Lord. Guess what? I'm walking around with a bullseye for the enemy. Say, go have at it. Begin to influence this area of my life. And he does. And so we've got to yield ourselves to the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask a question. This is a very important question. How can I resist an enemy I can't see if I don't know he's there? Most of us think someone under enemy activity is like the Gadarene. Well, that's pretty easy to tell. They can't keep their clothes on and they're cutting themselves and they're breaking chains and they live in the graveyards. Those are easy people to find. But, you know, is there something between that? Oh, yes. Most of us are not there. That's not our issues. Yeah. And we're living defeated lives. And the enemy's involved in the defeat. Heavily involved in defeat. And I'm going to make some very controversial statements in this section. I used to just hint at them, but I don't hint at them anymore. I believe it with all my heart, and I'm willing to bleed over them. I won't bleed over the rapture. I won't bleed over the millennium. And I won't bleed over some of that stuff, but I will bleed over this. I really believe strongly that we have been really deceived through a lot of the preaching that we've heard and what we've heard has no biblical basis. How can I resist the devil that I cannot see if I don't recognize his voice? And why is it I don't recognize the enemy's involvement in my life until after I'm defeated? Isn't that a little late? Do I have to be laying there and bleeding and you know, bruised and saying, I think I came in contact with the enemy? We've got to be able to, we're not going to cut it off if we don't catch it at the pass. And why is it we can't catch it at the pass? I want you to go to James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, 
it says in verse 12, Blessed is a man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempt any man. And so, just a rule of thumb again. If what I'm facing is designed to draw me away from God, I can know that it's not from God. See, Satan tempts me, and the purpose of it, the ultimate purpose of it, is to draw me away from God. But when God tests me, the purpose is to draw me closer to him, like Abraham and his son and so on. And so if the, the ultimate purpose of this thing is to draw me closer to God so God can reveal aspects of his characters, then I know that this is a test from God. But if I would do this and would lead me into sin or lead me away from God, I know this is not of God. But here it comes, and it's so vitally important. But every man is tempted when he's draw away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, it brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And here it comes. The reason you and I do not recognize the enemy's involvement in our temptations is this. He only tempts me to do what I would do anyway. He knows. I try to explain this on telephone when people call and, and, I, and I would say, you know, if you were walking downtown, and I say sometimes in my counseling office, and you got the thoughts of dropping your pants on the street corner, uh, what would you do? And most of the guys laugh. You know why they laugh? It's not their thing. But I was talking to a pastor on the phone and I used that. I said, but if you're walking downtown and you got, you know, the thought of dropping your pants on the street corner, what would you do? And he said, Logan, that's what I do. You've got to help me. I go, oh, no, wrong illustration. <laughs> We're laughing, but, it, you know, he's saying, oh, brother. But see, it's something that isn't in my area. I can laugh about it. It has no, why doesn't Satan tell me to do that? Because I wouldn't do it. He doesn't shoot arrows that won't fit. He only shoots where it will fit. That's what it's saying here. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own secret desires and enticed. And I want to make this as a statement, a very strong statement. Think about it. I personally do not believe that any of us are ever tempted apart from demonic involvement. That's strong. I'm going to say it again. I do not believe that any Christian is ever tempted apart from demonic involvement. You know why? The Bible never tells us to resist temptation. Ever. There's not a verse. And yet I was taught all my life, resist temptation, resist temptation. Haven't you heard that? That's what I was taught. I taught kids to resist temptation. The Bible says resist the tempter. There's a difference. When you resist temptation, where's the focus? It's on the very thing that, 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 you, that trips you up. Is that where I'm to look? Or should I look behind and see who's there? And if I am to resist temptation, why isn't there a verse? Not even one. There's not one verse that tells us to do that. But there are verses that tell us to do what? To resist the devil. A good parallel, a good parallel passage there is in First Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 5, Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church, For this cause I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor be in vain. He didn't say the world or the flesh. 
The whole world lies where? In the wicked one. The flesh is the part of me that's temptable, and I'm dealing with a tempter. If Satan's not involved in all my temptations, which ones is he so I can resist him? How do I determine? Do you ever think that one up? How do I know which ones he's involved in? I think God assumed that he's involved in all of them, that we would assume that. And when he comes, we would resist him, and he would go. Resist the devil, and he will, he will flee from you. Now let's move. I know that's a new thought, but think about it. Go through the scriptures. I read the New Testament through again and again. I think I've done Greek word studies on every single verse in spiritual warfare in the New Testament. If I don't understand, I call my Greek scholar friends that I taught in Bible college with. I run it through them. I don't want to teach anything that is not true, but I'm willing to teach that which has not been taught if I believe with all my heart it's true. And you're going to have to show me in the scriptures that it isn't true, and you can't do it. I mean, people have tried, and they can't do it. They say, well, it says flee youthful lusts. Absolutely. That doesn't say resist temptation. It says flee what? Youthful lusts. If there's a bookstore two blocks from here, and you're driving by it, and you know it's there, don't drive down that street. Why do you want to open yourself up? You know that's a weakness. Why do you want to go there? Did David sit, I mean, did um, um, Joseph sit down with Mrs. Potiphar and said, let's have a cup of coffee and talk about this? No, he got out of there. And I'm not saying don't get out of there. But the scripture does not say to resist temptation. In fact, I thought it was so wonderful. A mother told me the other day, she said, you know what I told my son? Son, I don't want you to focus on sin. I don't want you to focus on temptation. On temptation. I don't want you to focus on sin. I don't want you to focus on the pleasure of sin. I want you to focus on the consequences of sin. That's powerful. I don't know if you figured it out yet. I look at these kids. I said, I don't know if you kids have figured this out yet. Do you know that sin's pleasurable? I said, any old man will tell you it isn't. You know he's really old. <laughs> the issue is not the pleasure. The issue is what? It's against God. It's going to pull me into bondage. And I'm going to pay a horrible price for this. Terrible price. And I need to see the price. You ever been in a in a jewelry store and wanted to to see something you know the most frustrating thing about those jewelry stores the price tags are upside down they want you to hold it and look at it and Moses did and he turned the price tag over you know what Moses said it's not worth it I don't want to be the king of Egypt I don't want the pleasures of sin for a season I'd rather suffer with the people of God because I look at the eternal rewards of that Okay, but I know this is hard, but we have to realize that it's so vital that we resist. How do we resist? I don't know how we're doing on time. No one's telling me. Rick's not moving, so I don't know if we're doing good or bad. Are we doing good or bad? Okay, and when we come back, I want you to turn to Luke 4, and we're going to look at how do I resist? You know, how did Jesus resist, and how are we taught to resist the enemy if we're not to resist the temptation?